Hey man, let's give it up for our children. How amazing was that? Out of mouths of children comes praise to our God. Welcome to Ben Tree here in person in Carrollton and wherever you're joining us from, we exist to experience and share the love of Jesus. And we're thankful for moments like this where we get to worship together and in other venues, we get to be known and make a difference. Thank you for being here today. My name is Libin Abraham and I get the joy of serving here as lead pastor. I just believe that God brought you here on purpose. He allowed you to come across our stream on purpose. He's got something to say to you this morning. A few weeks ago, my wife and I, Stacey and I, we went to Asheville, North Carolina, uh, and it was one of the most beautiful towns we had ever been to. We've never been there before. We just love the mountain range and this quaint nature of the town in Asheville. Now, prior to going there, several people told us, uh, if you're going to go to Asheville, you ought to go see the Biltmore House. I don't know if you've ever, some of you have seen the Biltmore House, it's a few of us, yeah. Uh, I said, well, I didn't know much about it, but because it came so highly recommended, I thought, well, we're here anyway, we ought to go check it out. So we did. We visited it in the evening, and here's a picture I took of the Biltmore House, beautifully lit up for Christmas. Now, the Biltmore House was built by George Washington Vanderbilt in 1899 to 1895. The Vanderbilt family was one of the wealthiest, at one point, one of the wealthiest families in the world, perhaps the wealthiest family in the world. And here, George Vanderbilt, he had received a pretty good size inheritance, and so he built this massive mansion. Uh, the Biltmore House has 250 rooms, thinking about cleaning that. Um, it has over 178,000 square feet of living space, of floor space. One of the most magnificent buildings. It, it actually is the largest privately owned house in America. The largest privately owned home in America. So uh, we were touring the house. Obviously, no one lives there anymore, but they, the Vanderbilt's still own it, and uh, they've opened it up for tours, and we were checking out the house, and it was beautiful, and then we went up this massive spiraling stairway of 107 steps, leading you all the way to the floor, fourth floor. And then as we were going up, we got off the second floor to see the second floor of the house, and it was really beautiful. You go down this long hallway of portraits and fireplace, and you actually see the bedrooms of the family members. And then one of the bedrooms, it's the most grand suite on that floor. It's called Louis 15 room. Louis 15 room. Here's a picture of this room. Um, and this is a unique room named after King Louis the 15th, the French king. And this room is special because this is a room in which all the Vanderbilt children were born. As, as you go into this room, it's so spectacular. It's, it's got uh, Rococo designs, elements, and uh, just C-shaped curves and rounded forms and beautiful architecture and, and pictures. But then you open up the windows, and it's the most spectacular view of the gardens and the terrace. Uh, the balcony overlooks the esplanade. It, it was this room that George and Edith had their only daughter, only child, Cornelia, and it was in this room that Cornelia then had her two sons. It was sort of the birthing room, the nursery. Uh, because the views were so spectacular and you could spend extended, uninterrupted time in this corner of the house, gazing at some of the most beautiful views and architecture. And it was the most convenient house probably then and now. And I couldn't help but standing in this house, in this room particularly, during the Christmas season, 
And thinking about this room in which the Vanderbilt children were born and comparing it to the place into which Jesus was born. I mean, if there was anyone who deserved to be born in a house like this, in a staple of luxury and convenience, it was Jesus. If anyone should have been given a pristine room with beautiful views and the perfect glamorous architecture, it should have been Mary and Joseph. Because they were not just giving birth to royalty, they were giving birth to God in flesh. But this large, privately owned, luxurious home was as far as you could get from the place and conditions into which Jesus was born. Jesus chose Bethlehem over the Biltmore. He chose obscurity over luxury, peasants over elegance. He chose a manger instead of majesty. He chose the borrowed stable instead of a privately owned mansion. Jesus came into a broken world through broken people in the unlikeliest of ways. And in doing so, God was fulfilling all of the promises, over 350 promises about the coming of Jesus. He was staying true to his word. This is how Jesus entered the world. In this season, we are celebrating his first coming, and we are looking forward to phase two of Christmas, his second coming. Last week, we looked at one of the many promises and prophecies of the scripture. As the prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 5, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, records about his coming, that he would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the littlest, the smallest of the towns in Israel. But yet, though he was born in Bethlehem, he did not begin in Bethlehem, for his origins are from antiquity, from ancient times. There was never a time in which the Christ was not. He's always existed. Everything found its origin and beginning in Jesus. He has been the I am of the past, the I am of the present, and the I am of the future. Last week, we looked at how Jesus was not just promised in the Old Testament, but so present in the Old Testament. You've heard of the ghost of Christmas past, but what's better than the ghost of Christmas past is the promise and presence of Jesus of the Christmas past. Today, we're going to fast forward those 700 years since the promise was given through Micah, and we're going to look at what happens at the scene recorded in Matthew chapter 2. Right after Jesus is born, shortly after the Christ is born. And here Matthew 2 resurfaces the 700-year-old prophecy from Micah. And here in Matthew 2, we see three responses to the coming of Jesus. Three responses to the first Christmas. Three three responses, of which one of them probably is one of our responses today. So here's what Matthew records in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. 
Here in Matthew 2, we are introduced to the wise men who were coming in search of Jesus. They have seen a star. They know that a new king has been born, so they're coming looking for Jesus. Notice the timing of their arrival. Matthew says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, I know that I may be at the risk of blowing up your nativity scene. But the wise men were not there at the birth of Jesus in the manger. I'm sorry. Matthew says they came after he was born. In fact, later on we'll see that by the time the wise men meet Jesus, he's not living in a manger, he's living in a house. He's not an infant, he's actually a child. And they've been traveling for probably more than one year looking for Jesus, so by the time they find him, Jesus is a toddler between the ages of one to two. That's when they find him. So here's what I'm saying. Don't go home and tear up your great-grandmother's nativity scene that's been passed down to you. Keep it. It's okay. We can all have a little grace this Christmas season, and we can fudge on the nativity scene. That's okay. But perhaps you would consider putting the wise men at the edge of the mantle and moving them closer in after Christmas. That would be a little bit more accurate to the story. Now, if they were wise women, not wise men, they would have showed up on time. They would have. <laughs> Ladies? And they would have brought more appropriate gifts like diapers and wipes and baby food, not gold, myrrh and frankincense. That's why you don't send us guys to Target to get a baby gift. We'll come out of there with AirPods and PlayStation. <laughs> so the wise men, they see a star and they come looking for Jesus. Where do they come from? Who are these men? Actually, the wise men emerged probably six, seventh century before in Babylon, in Persia. Uh, they were the most elite, educated, intellectual group in all of society, really in all the world that was so well sought out. Uh, they were the most educated in terms of mathematics, science, astronomy, astrology, history, the occult. If you needed to know something, you pursued the magi or the wise men. They were even considered magicians because they had all these supernatural insights that were the most well-learned intellectual group in the society. In fact, they were even called kingmakers. The wise men were called kingmakers because no Persian king could be made king unless they had been trained, approved, and crowned by the wise men. So they were invited to crown a new king because they knew best. They knew all of history. They knew all the specifics of what to look for. Kingmakers. In fact, we actually meet the wise men in Daniel chapter 2 when Daniel is in Babylon and he has a dream. He's able to interpret dreams and the king at that time placed Daniel in charge of the wise men. Look what Daniel chapter 2 says in verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. Talk about generosity. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor of all the wise men of Babylon. The wise men were ranked as the highest officials in the king's court. And here Daniel is given the charge, the managerial charge of the wise men. So here's what I think happened. Uh, Daniel uh, was given so many insights and revelation into the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. He begins to write about them in the book of Daniel. And if you want to read one of the most specific prophecies about the first coming of Jesus, read Daniel 9, where Daniel 9 predicts and prophesies the very year that Jesus will come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. 
as a priest, as the age of the priest. So you could really backtrack from that prophecy and get to about the time to which Jesus would be born. So I'm imagining that Daniel is sharing the revelation and insight he's receiving from God to those he's in charge of, the wise men. Perhaps he even left behind a scroll for them to read, who knows? But I think they were well clued into what Daniel had to say about at least the first coming of Jesus. And we know that even post-Daniel, there was heavy Jewish influence in Babylon because of so many Jews that lived there. Perhaps the wise men over time became familiar with prophecies like in Numbers 24 that began to speak of the coming Messiah as a star rising out of Jacob. And when the Persians took over the Babylonian Empire, the wise men were literally elevated to the status of priesthood. And so I think they were looking forward to the true king for hundreds of years because of Daniel, because of the scriptures. For four or 500 plus years, these kingmakers were looking forward to the time. They would look and see a star rising out of Jacob. And they would know that it's time. And then one day they spot a star rising from the general vicinity of Jerusalem. And they decided this is the moment. Somehow the Holy Spirit inspired such faith in them. This is the moment. The king is here. The king has been born. We must leave. And if, if they're leaving Babylon or around that area, it's a 900-mile journey to Jerusalem on foot. It's a long way. No Uber, no taxi, no flights. 900 miles, all based on a star. Imagine how that conversation went at home. <laughs> Honey, we're going to be gone for a few years because we saw a star. <laughs> we don't know exactly where, but we know the general direction. We don't know how long it'll take us to get there and when we'll be back. We don't really know who we're looking for, but he's really important. He must be the king of the Jews. Oh, by the way, as we leave, we're gonna take the most expensive gifts we have, like gold, like all of it that we can carry. We're gonna take with us. I don't think that's gonna go very well in my house, but I guess it did there. And off they go. And 900 some miles later, or at least several hundred miles later, they get to Jerusalem because it was around there that they spotted the star, and they're thinking to themselves, okay, if anyone knows about the birth of a new king, the king of the Jews, it will be the Jews in Jerusalem. Because there's plenty of Jews there. There are priests and rabbis and teachers of the scriptures there. They possess the scroll of Daniel and other prophets. Surely they would have already seen the king. They would have already received the Messiah and even worshipped him. So we just got to get to Jerusalem and find him for ourselves so that we too can worship him. Notice what Matthew says, says, Matthew 2 says, in verse 2, they get to Jerusalem, and they arrive in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Saying, uh, the word saying there is a present participle, which emphasizes continual action. Continual action is a present participle in the Greek. And so what Matthew was suggesting is they arrive in Jerusalem after maybe over a year of traveling, and they're saying to everyone they can find, they're asking everyone in Jerusalem, they're asking, they're imploring, they're requesting, have you seen him yet? They're not asking if he's been born. They're saying, where is he? We've seen a star. Surely you know where he is. We've come a long way. 
Where is he? And by the way, another assumption we make is that there's only three wise men. We don't know that. We know there's only three gifts, but that doesn't mean there's only three wise men. It could be two, it could be 20, it could be 30. We don't know. Most likely, it would have been an entourage, sort of like a cavalry riding into Jerusalem. These kingmakers have been walking for a long time. They've got carriers, they've got stuff that, that they've used to sustain them in this journey. It's a huge group of people. So imagine Jerusalem being stirred up. They're seeing this group, this entourage of kingmakers from the east who have recognized the monumental moment of the birth of a new king. By the way, east is where the enemies of Israel are. They're the most outside group of people you can imagine. And they're coming in, into Jerusalem saying, where is he? We gotta find him. We've seen the star. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Notice that their question is not, where is he who will become king of the Jews? Where is he who has been born king of Jews? Jesus in his born identity is already a king. He doesn't have to become a king. He doesn't achieve that. He doesn't earn it. He doesn't have to usurp someone else's kingdom. No, no, no. He already is king. He was king as a baby. He was king as a servant. He was king on the cross. And he rose out of that grave because proving to the world he is King Jesus. So the wise men come into Jerusalem asking, imploring, saying, where is he? We've got to find him asking about this king already born. Now, as they're asking everybody, word gets to Herod. Herod, who has been named by Caesar as the king of the Jews. Herod has a personal interest in this. So notice the next verse. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Now, I think, you know, early on, I think when I used to read this passage, I sort of pictured that as soon as the wise men came to Jerusalem, they went straight into Herod's palace and asked Herod, where is the new king of the Jews? I don't think anymore they did that because these wise men were wise, okay? <laughs> they knew better than not to do that. They know Herod. They know what he's capable of. So they're saying, asking to everyone else in Jerusalem, have you heard? Have you seen? And eventually... Herod wasn't told, he heard. Indirectly, perhaps, he heard from the rumbling, from the rumors around town that there's an entourage of kingmakers asking about a new king of the Jews. And Herod is disturbed. Uh, king Herod, he's called Herod the Great. And he was a great builder, architect. He built a phenomenal kingdom for himself. He was half Jewish and half Edomite, and he, he, he was a remarkable politician and ruler. He had a lot of power. Uh, he built the Wailing Wall that still stands today. He, he reconstructed the temple that Jesus walked into. He built entire cities. Herod had a lot of power, but the only thing that matched Herod's power was his insecurity and fear. He lived paranoid every single day that someone was out to get him. So much so that one time he thought his wife and two sons, his favorite wife, and two sons, that's never a good idea by the way, were out to get him, and so to protect his own kingdom, he murdered his favorite wife and his own two sons. Caesar, Augustus says about Herod, I'd rather be a pig in Herod's house than his son, because Herod, who is half Jewish, won't kill and eat a pig. I'd rather be a pig, because they know what Herod is capable of. Uh, he's a murderer, he's evil. Uh, he will do whatever it takes, run over whoever it takes, sacrifice, kill, 
do whatever it takes to maintain power, to maintain control. So as he hears that perhaps there's a new king that's been born that he's not aware of, what does he do? He's deeply disturbed. He's angry, paranoid, and he clenches his fist of power, grips control greater than ever before. Herod is disturbed. Herod, Herod is threatened by the news of a new king. And now all of Jerusalem is disturbed with him. Jerusalem knows what happens when Herod is mad. It's not pretty. They have seen, they have known what happens in the wake of a disappointed, angry Herod. So because he's disturbed, they too are disturbed. Not only that, this was a, everything was on edge in Jerusalem in first century at this time. They were being over-governed, over-ruled by a foreign empire. They have a radical leader in Herod. There are Jewish uprisings that are happening all across Jerusalem that's destabilizing the, the city. And it's notifying the Roman Empire they've got to be more heavy-handed. And now come the kingmakers, an entourage of them perhaps, from the east announcing a new king has been born. Of course they're on edge, wondering what is about to go down. This is not a peaceful moment in Jerusalem. Herod is disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him as the wise men come into town. So what does Herod do? When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they said to him, quote unquote, and notice this passage of scripture from Micah 5 that we read last week. And this is where Micah and his words are resurfaced. Because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, which means Ephrathah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus being a ruler and a shepherd. But Herod here gathers all, not just some, but all the chief priests and all the scribes. They were the religious experts of the day. They were the senior pastor and his staff members. They had spent their whole life reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures and looking for clues and prophecies, teaching the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures. So he said, if anyone's going to know about a new king, a Messiah that's going to be born, surely it's the chief priests and the scribes. So let me just get all of them in a room and ask them this question. Is there any prophecy about the coming of a new king, a Messiah? And the chief priests gather and the scribes gather and they don't have to do a Google search. They know from the top of their memory exactly where Jesus will be born. They know from studying the scriptures their whole life exactly when and where the Messiah would come. And they say, oh yeah, Herod, there is a prophecy that a new king, the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem specifically in the land of Judah. Because out of Bethlehem, the smallest town, will come this ruler shepherd to govern Israel. So Herod gets the answer that he's looking for. So notice what happens next. Verse 7, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men. I think this may be, this is just my opinion, this may be the first time Herod actually meets the wise men. He's heard the rumors, the rumblings. He gathers 
the chief priests and scribes, tell me about this rumor. Is it true? Oh, there's, there's a king that's to be born in Bethlehem. So he secretly says, wise men, come here. He summons the wise men and asks them the exact time the star appeared. The wise men want to know where Jesus is born. Herod wants to know when he's born. Because he's already devising an evil plan to rid the world of Jesus. He asked at the time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Now, if you can, in your mind, hear the following line through the voice of the Godfather, it would really make this passage come alive to you, okay? So just imagine the Godfather saying this. Go and search. I, I, I'm not going to do that for you, so you got to do it. Here. Go and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, report back to me so that I, too, can go and worship him. Oh, yeah, sure, Herod. Report back to me so that I can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was. The star they had seen at its rising. They spotted it again. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. They hadn't even seen Jesus yet. They just saw a sign of Jesus. They just saw the star again. And they're overwhelmed with joy. Isn't it amazing that Jerusalem is destroyed? I mean, Jerusalem is disturbed. But these wise men are overjoyed. The insiders are disturbed at the coming of Jesus, but the outsiders are overjoyed at the coming of Jesus. Just like the shepherds were overjoyed at the announcement of Jesus here. They haven't even seen Jesus yet, and they're overjoyed. Jerusalem disturbed, but the wise men overjoyed. Entering the house, not a manger, but a house, they saw the child, not an infant, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And what did they do? Falling to their knees, they worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country. They came from a long ways off to their own country by another route. Imagine the wise men who have been traveling from a whole different country, perhaps over a year, after spotting the star coming to Jerusalem, asking, saying, requesting of everyone they can, have you seen him? Do you know where we can find him? Finally, they're given the news of where they can find him. See the star, they're overjoyed, and they come and see this child. And immediately they embrace faith in this child. Jesus hasn't said a word. He hasn't even died on the cross. He hasn't prophesied. He hasn't done a miracle. He is just there because he's born a king. And they recognize him. And their first and only response is to fall on their knees and worship. This is the elite of the elite. This is the intellectual. This is the kingmakers. But when the kingmaker sees a real king, they fall to their knees and worship. Give them everything they brought. Gold, frankincense, mirror. The most expensive, the most prized treasures of the time. Perhaps treasures and gifts that resemble the nature of Jesus as king and priest and a sacrifice. Whatever the case may be, this is the greatest of gifts they could offer. And they give him everything. Because he's worthy. Even as a baby, even as a child, Jesus was worthy of everything they had. They worshiped him. I want to take a moment. I want to compare some of these responses 
to the first coming of Jesus, to the birth of Christ, Christmas present. Uh, you have King Herod, who has personal fear. King Herod is marked by fear. The wise men are marked by faith, but Herod is marked by fear. Fear that he's going to lose control. Fear that he's going to lose his throne. Fear that he's going to lose the kingdom he worked so hard to build. The wise men embrace faith, but Herod embraces fear. The wise men are looking for a savior. Herod wants to be the savior. Herod doesn't see a savior. He sees a rival. He is threatened. Uh, the wise men want to worship Jesus. Herod wants to destroy Jesus. Uh, the wise men are seeking, searching truth. Maybe you're here today searching for truth, and here is Herod suppressing truth. Herod wants to suppress truth so much that as you read down the next few verses, he orders, he mandates the murdering of children that were two years of age and younger, little boys especially in Bethlehem, because he so wants to destroy the chance that he will be overthrown. He's so obsessed with his own kingdom that he misses King Jesus. So obsessed with his own empire and plans that he misses the greatest opportunity for him to not just be a footnote in the story of Jesus. Every time we are ruled by fear, controlled, it leads to some form of destruction. Somebody lies in the wake of us trying to clench onto power and control like King Herod did. He's marked by personal fear, and he misses Jesus. Now, I know you're thinking, I'm glad I'm not as bad as King Herod, and I hope you're not. <laughs> I would agree, you're probably not as bad as King Herod. But there are days and even seasons when we're more interested in our kingdom than King Jesus, aren't there? I would even venture to say that there's a little Herod in all of us who seek our way against the way of Jesus. So a little bit in us that wants to maintain power or control, promote self, promote our plans, promote our agenda. Maybe you're already this December making plans for 2023, all those amazing resolutions and goals are coming together. Is it about your kingdom or is it about King Jesus? Whose kingdom is it after? Who is it pointing towards? Who is it making much of? Is it about our world? Is it about our life, our convenience, our power, our wealth, our status? Or is it about making so much of King Jesus? Are we obsessed with Christ, his kingdom, that we would be willing to lose it all? for the cause of following him and trusting him. Maybe this new year, Jesus is inviting you to something new that requires faith, that requires losing something, giving up on our dream, and in those moments when we fully trust Jesus, or do we keep our fists closed? You can have everything but this Jesus. Are we gonna be a people in 2023 marked by personal fear or of great faith? Here's Herod, marked by personal fear. But there is another group of people that boggles my mind, and it's the chief priests and the scribes. Herod is marked by personal fear, but chief priests and the scribes are marked by their personal expectations. 
They had their own expectations of who Jesus should be and how he should come. And if anyone should have gotten the coming of Jesus right, it should have been the chief priests and the scribes who have spent their whole life studying the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures. But yet they missed the centerpiece, the subject of the scriptures. And this is the indictment that Jesus has on the chief priests where Jesus says about them in John 5, verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, but yet they testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. They knew the scriptures, but they still missed Jesus. They knew about God, but they still missed God. They were so enthralled and captured in their own theology, they missed Jesus. It's possible to know about God, to have knowledge and not have life. Because life comes from the subject, the center, the source of the scriptures, who is Jesus. You can study, you can have Bible knowledge, you can have theology, you can interpret Greek and Hebrew, all of that's amazing. But if you miss Jesus, you still don't have life. And here, the chief priests who spent their whole life studying the scriptures, they missed him. Now get this. The chief priests, they see the wise men, this entourage. They're asked about the birth of Jesus from King Herod. They give the answer to where he is born in Bethlehem, and still they don't go. It's one thing if they maybe missed it, but it's another thing to, everything to hit you in the face. And still choose not to go. Not a single one of them. All the chief priests were there. All the scribes were there. But none of them go to Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem was just a skip and a hop over. <laughs> Look at this map. Look how close Bethlehem and Jerusalem are. Bethlehem was just five miles, less than five miles from Jerusalem. The chief priest goes, hey, let's go find out for ourselves. Let's go see if these kingmakers have something worth saying. Let's go check it out. They don't go. You know what? Even if they didn't go to Bethlehem, they could have just caught a ride with the wise men. It would have been that hard to find a baby or a child in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not that big. It's not that many babies being born in Bethlehem. The wise men are following a star. They could have followed along, but they didn't go. The wise men travel over 900 miles seeking Jesus but the religious leaders can't go five miles seeking Jesus. I wonder what they were afraid of. I wonder what they were unwilling to let go. The wise men came 900 miles looking for Jesus, but they didn't go five. Because it's never about the distance, it's always about the heart. It's not about the distance. It's always been about the heart. It's not about whether you lack a religious pedigree. It's not about the time since your last prayer. It's not about a lack of moral compass, a lack of knowledge, Bible knowledge. No, no, no. It's not about the distance. It's always about the heart. And if you have a heart that wants Jesus, nothing can keep you from him. No distance, long or short, could ever keep you from him. Maybe you have disqualified yourself thinking, I'm too far away, I'm too distant, I've done too much. Friend, it's never about the distance, it's always been about the heart. Here, wise men who travel 900 miles meet Jesus 
while the scribes miss them by five miles. They're just five miles from their prophecies being fulfilled, five miles from their hopes and dreams coming true, five miles from meeting the God of the universe, the long-awaited Messiah, the true king, but they miss him by five miles. You may be five minutes from finding life in Jesus, five seconds from eternity being gifted to you because in this Jesus, in this baby born in Bethlehem is eternal life. Will you let five miles keep you? Will you let 900? I'm asking you today how long or short release your heart to follow him because it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Seek him, pursue him, yield to him, worship him, find this Jesus today. Herod is marked by personal fear leading to destruction. Chief priest marked by personal expectations because Jesus didn't come the way they thought. God answered their prayers differently. Maybe that's what's keeping you. God answered my prayers differently. This is not how I expected God to do this. God has taken too long, and for them, God took too long. They didn't expect an infant, a child. But then there are the wise men who have personal faith. Herod was hindered by personal fear, religious leaders by personal expectation. But here the Holy Spirit birthed personal faith in the wise men. The outsiders find Jesus while the insiders miss him. They see Jesus, they come to him, and they worship. Which of these are your response today? Maybe today God is moving you from fear to faith, from disappointment over failed expectations to real genuine faith in him. You don't have to have it all, know it all, but will you be willing to trust him? Maybe you're more like those in Jerusalem who are disturbed. I don't know the cause of your disturbance. Maybe it's internal, external, social, religious. Maybe it's family, financial. I don't know the cause of your disturbance, but you know what? Jesus came for those who were disturbed in Jerusalem. He came for you. He came for you. As disturbed as you may be, as you're trying to put all the pieces together and there's a restlessness happening inside of you, Jesus came for the disturbed Jerusalem. He came for you. And just think about all the ways that God spoke to the wise men from the scrolls of Daniel, from a star, from the chief priest, from King Herod, from a dream. But ultimately, he spoke loud and clear through Jesus, this child they met. God is speaking to you in many forms, maybe through creation, maybe through his word, maybe from the people around you, but ultimately, Jesus is the final and sure declaration of his love for you. We have something far better than a star to put our gaze on. We have a cross and an empty grave to put our gaze on. That was the declaration of God himself that he came for you. He has overcome everything to, for you. And because he came for you and I in our disturbance, in our fear, in our failed expectations, he invites us today to come to him. He came for us so that we can come to him. You know what's better than a star in the sky? It's a spirit in our heart. Yeah, say by the bell right there. <laughs> What's better than a star in the sky is his spirit in our heart. Because yes, creation speaks of him from the outside, but his spirit speaks of him from the inside. 
He never leaves. He will never abandon you. He is calling you. He is wooing you to himself. He came for you. He came for the religious like the chief priest. He came for the political like Herod. He came for the wise and intellectual like the wise men. He came for the disturbed like Jerusalem. Wherever you find yourself today, would you come to him? Let's pray. O oh, King Jesus, born a king, died a king, rose a king. You're coming for us. You have come, you will come. So today I'm praying, God, across the airwaves, wherever people are joining us in this room, wherever we find ourselves today, will you stir up faith by the power of your spirit to turn to Jesus because ultimately this is a story about you finding us, you inviting us, you calling us home. And maybe today someone needs to move from fear to faith, from failed expectations to faith in you. And even in the midst of the disturbance of our soul, today may we find Jesus born in Bethlehem, king of the universe, and respond in worship. Holy Spirit, do that whether we're five miles or 900 miles away. May we not miss what you're saying to us and what you're doing. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to invite you today, right after the service, if you're here or if you're online and you need to make a decision to follow Jesus, would you join us at the prayer room? Maybe you're feeling disturbed on the inside. Join us in the prayer room. We have ministers who would love to take the next step with you. Pray for you, talk to you, answer questions for you. Join us online with Pastor Matt. Join us here in the prayer room. Thank you so much for being here with us today, and we hope that you take your next step of faith. Thank you for worshiping with us, and as Joanne said, would you continue to worship in generosity? In fact, you're going to get an email from me later today of just inviting you to generosity, even as the wise men took the step of generosity in worshiping Jesus. Giving isn't always worship, but you can't worship without giving something, whether it's your time, your heart, your service, your resources. So we invite you to worship at the end of the year through generosity. God bless you. We love you. Have a great rest of the day.